Welcome to the Ackerman Angle, your resource for what you need to know about wage and hour compliance. I'm Damian Delaney, and I am co-chair of Ackerman's Wage and Hour Practice and a partner with a firm based in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeff Kimmel, co-chair of Ackerman's Wage and Hour Practice and a partner based in the firm's New York office. Today we'll be discussing what to expect on the wage and hour front in 2023. Today we're going to discuss expected challenges to new rules put into effect by the Biden administration last year, including the test for classification of workers as independent contractors, the new 80-20 rule to determine if workers can be paid the tip credit minimum wage, a new wave of court challenges to how collective actions under the Fair Labor Standards Act are administered by the courts, and whether certain regulatory restrictions on the use of the highly compensated individual exemption to the Fair Labor Standards Act overtime requirements will be struck by the Supreme Court. Got a lot on our plate today, Jeff. So that's right, Damien. And the first thing we're going to talk about um, is the tip credit minimum wage 80-20 rule that was implemented by the current administration and went into effect in December 2021. We talked about this in depth back at our first inaugural episode back in, in April of 2022. Um, and there's been some recent challenges in the courts to that rule. Just to quickly review, and again, we went into this more in depth than in our prior uh, podcast, um, but just to review, the 80-20 rule has been around for a long time, and traditionally it said that if a tipped worker spent more than 20% of a given week on non-tipped activities, they had to be paid the full minimum wage um, and, and not the tipped credit minimum wage. Um, the Biden administration uh, put into effect this twist on this rule in December 2021, um, which added a couple uh, a, a couple additional restrictions. One was that any time spent on non-directly tipped activities or activities, activities that didn't directly support tipped activities could not be paid at the tip credit minimum wage. They also included a rule that said that any time exceeding 30 consecutive minutes on tip supporting activities had to be paid at the full minimum wage, not the tip credit minimum wage. And there were some other um, additional restrictions put on, put, uh, added to the 80-20 rule as well. Um, but the important thing is that that rule was, was challenged as we predicted it would be. Um, and the, there's a, a lawsuit filed in the, um, in the Texas courts where the restaurant association, the plaintiff in that case, actually called the Restaurant Law Center, um, sought to challenge the, the provision and sought an injunction prohibiting the rule or preventing the rule from going to effect pending adjudication on the merits. Um, the district court judge in that case in Texas uh, denied the injunction. That's now on appeal. There was oral arguments at the Fifth Circuit uh, in, in early December, December 5th, um, to determine whether or not to actually reverse the district court's decision and implement, you know, put a stay on enforcement of that rule pending adjudication on the merits. Uh, at oral argument, the Fifth Circuit panel seemed conflicted on what to do um, and whether there was sufficient, quote, irreparable harm 
to uh, support putting an injunction into effect. So essentially, uh, employers need to be aware of that challenge, be aware that that, law, that that rule is currently in effect, make sure that if they have tipped workers who they're paying the tipped credit minimum wage, that they are complying with the new rule. Um, and of course, if there's a decision in that case, we will, we will certainly notify employers and they can determine how to adjust their practices. And, and Jeff, what happens if the Fifth Circuit rules in favor of the Restaurant Association? Um, what's, what's the effect of that to um, employers that are faced with complying with this rule? Well, the immediate issue, again, is the injunction. So if they rule in favor of, of the, on the current appeal, that would simply mean that the Department of Labor is enjoined from enforcing that revised 80-20 rule, which will then revert back to the prior iteration of the, of the rule, uh, which was actually under the prior administration. Um, so at that point, of course, you know, you and I will talk about that and we'll let employers know exactly if they should be changing their practices or what they should be aware of. Um, but essentially this modified 80-20 rule will be held in abeyance pending a determination on the full merits. And, and of course, that's you know, a potential seesaw for, for employers, right? Because what we're talking about is a preliminary injunction and there would be a full, potentially a full trial over the enforceability of the rule to come after that with the possibility that the Department of Labor could ultimately win in the end of the day. So employers may have to <laughs> hopscotch back between the old rule and the new rule for a while here. I mean, do you think there's a realistic risk of that? I think there there is a realistic risk of that, and you know that was part of the basis of the, the restaurant law center seeking this injunction, was to say the cost of compliance with this new rule is so significant that it would cause irreparable harm to the industry if it if they had to take steps to comply with it, and it was eventually determined to be invalid. Um, and they actually quoted the Department of Labor, who in the process of the, the rulemaking procedure um, stated that it would cost at least $177 million for the hospitality industry to start complying with this rule. Uh, and the question is whether you know, that's significant enough cost and a real number to justify the injunction and determine there be irreparable harm. And, and if I remember correctly, Jeff, um, and, and somebody out in podcast verse will probably correct me on this, but I believe the Fifth Circuit is only Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, I think, is the, is the third state. Does this litigation affect employers outside of those three states? Um, is this going to have some kind of nationwide effect, or would it just be limited to those, um, to those states? This would have a nationwide effect. This is seeking a nationwide injunction on the enforceability by the Department of Labor of this new rule. So all of our clients out there, regardless of, of where you may be, need to, to be watching this one pretty carefully. Absolutely. So Damien, the next thing we're going to be talking about is something that we did have talked about in a prior podcast, again, which is uh, episode four, and it's the new Department of Labor independent contractor test. Um, and, you know, as we've previously discussed, the Department of Labor for 
you know, and, and the courts, federal courts, for going back about 70 years have been applying what's called the economic reality test to determine, determine the proper classification of workers under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So if an employer has a worker working as an independent contractor and that classification is challenged um, by the Department of Labor or by a plaintiff in the court um, on the basis that they should be an employee and not an independent contractor, the test that the federal courts and the Department of Labor use is called the economic reality test. Um, during the prior administration, a new rule was proposed and went into effect for some period of time, um, which modified the economic reality test. Um, and rather than the five or six factor test that had been in effect for all these years, it was applied slightly differently in different court circuits, federal court circuits. Some used five factors, some used six. Some analyzed them a bit differently than others. Um, but they took that five or six factor test and they modified it um, and they took two of the factors, um, which was the degree of control by the employer over the worker and opportunity for profit or loss and said these are the most important factors. And in any analysis as to the classification of a worker, the courts and the Department of Labor should first look at these two factors. And if it's clear based on these two factors that the worker is properly classified as an independent contractor, then most of the time that's the way it should go. Um, if it's fairly clear that the worker should be an employee, then that's the way it should go. If it's not crystal clear by either of these two primary factors, then the courts of the Department of Labor will look at the other five or six factors, which are permanency of the relationship, um, amount of investment in the business by the worker, um, and whether the work being performed by the worker is integral to the employer's business. Um, the, when the new administration came in, they essentially issued an order putting that, that, that prior administration rule uh, on the shelf, essentially held it in abeyance, um, and issued their own version uh, for comment uh, of the economic reality test, which went back and said, no, 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 there aren't too many primary, there aren't two primary factors. There's these five or six factors. And this is just a straight out balancing test where, you know, it, 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 in any particular circumstance, some of these factors may be given more weight than others, but there's no predetermined amount of weight to be given to any of these factors. It's just a pure balancing test. Um, so that, that new rule was issued in mid-October for comments. Uh, the comment period has been extended. Um, it was extended to the, the end of December in 2022. Um, and we are now awaiting to see what the final rule um, will look like when it is issued by the Department of Labor, and which will probably be issued in uh, the first quarter of 2023. Um, we expect that when that happens, similar to that 80-20 rule that we talked about for tip workers a few minutes ago, there's gonna be all sorts of court challenges. Probably gonna be in the Fifth Circuit because that's where business groups like to challenge 
these type of rules. Um, and they're going to say that this exceeds the authority of the Department of Labor, this new rule, um, and so forth. So that's what employers should be conscious of. They should be aware of this new analysis by the, you know, for the independent contractor test um, by the Department of Labor and should be looking at their practices and making sure that they're you know, in compliance the best they can. And of course, as I always like to say, Jeff, when the topic comes up, always be mindful of state law too, right? Because you maybe uh, have independent contractors in jurisdictions that are, are more disfavoring of, uh, of independent contractors um, than the federal government is. Like your, like your state. Being, <laughs> chief among those being uh, the state of California. So right. uh, it's always good to have your employment lawyer on speed dial when you have questions um, about these independent contractor classifications. Um, and, and it may be useful to know that um, if you are in a state like California, that all of this rulemaking at the Department of Labor right now may not have a whole lot of impact on <laughs> your decision to, to treat a worker as an employee rather than an independent contractor. That's correct. And, you know, the, the interesting thing to note right now is that technically the, the current rule that's in effect is still the prior administration rule. Um, now, the Department of Labor is not going to use it. I, I don't believe in, in anal you know, doing any analyses of, of independent you know, worker relationships and any of the matters that they're adjudicating or reviewing. Um, but technically that that rule is still in effect. Um, I would not advise my clients, by the way, to 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 rely on that in you know in looking at their practices. But technically, that that you know two-factor primary factor test is still is still in effect. Well, I think it may be fair to say, Jeff, that that even though the DOL might not apply that rule court may well, especially if you're in one of those Fifth Circuit states, right? <laughs> the courts there may well um, apply the, uh, the the 2021 rule in, instead of the, of the, the current pro proposed rule, the proposed framework, especially if, frankly, those judges are, would be disinclined to, um, to, to approve this rule, I guess, if that's, if that's the right word, uh, would be disinclined to approve um, this rule if it came before them, right? I totally agree. So right now the courts, you know, we don't know which, what, what rule the courts are going to use. Again, what they might just end up doing is looking at federal court precedent, not, not really giving the DOL's, you know, official test that much weight either way. Because one of the things that, you know, courts look at to determine whether they're going to give deference to an agency rule or ruling is, has it been consistent, right? And there's clearly, you know, over the past several years there's been some seesawing right so what you know a, a court may give the department of labor's rule in this regard significant weight or it might decide that it doesn't need to be, be deferential to the department of labor's rule in this respect so jeff to take a detour and talk about litigation for a minute there's uh th there's a big uh development um, or potential development um, that may be of interest to employers when it comes to how FLSA collective actions are litigated in federal court. Currently, in most jurisdictions, uh, FLSA cases 
are litigated in what's called a two-step process. And it involves an early initial conditional certification of the supposedly similarly situated employees who are identified in the complaint. Right. And this process allows a plaintiff, in most cases, before discovery, before any real significant factual development of the case, to send out a notice to those allegedly similarly situated employees to give them an opportunity to opt in or participate in the FLSA claim. Because the FLSA itself requires all employees to consent to participate in the action. It's not a, or not a class action, rather, as we, as we often understand that. So then, after discovery happens and after the factual development, then it goes on to the employer to make a motion to decertify the class at the end of the process instead of having the plaintiff show at some reasonable step that the employees actually are similarly situated. And, and, and you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting about this, this two-step process, and you may have said this, I'm not sure, but this is a judge-created process. This is not, you know, this is not it codified in the Fair Labor Standards Act. Some judge came up with this idea that, you know, at a very early stage in a putative FLSA collective action, you know, all workers of an employer should get a notice that this case is pending, uh, you know, that are considered similarly situated to the, the named plaintiffs, um, and get a notice that this thing is pending and an opportunity to opt in. And then after, you know, intensive fact discovery over a period of time, then really rule whether it makes sense to have a collective action or not. And, with, and if they rule no, right, then all these people who got the notices then have to be notified, well, just kidding, there, there really is no collective action, right? Uh, I mean, it, it And I it think that, that Jeff, yeah, and Jeff, that gets us to where we are today, because whoever the judge was who came up with the two-step, and I don't think, you know, we need, need to spend time on that topic, but it was not the Supreme Court of the United States. Correct. And that's led us to um, the situation where now courts of appeals may be saying in large numbers, we don't agree with this procedure and we want to do something different. Just that happened in 2021 in the Fifth Circuit in a case called Swales versus KLLM Transport Services, where the Fifth Circuit said, we're throwing out this two-step process. Um, we think it, it you know, potentially stirs up litigation early in the progress, or sorry, early in the process. And um, by, by sending that notice out and, and essentially takes the onus off of the plaintiff to develop the, 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 symbol, the, the case or the evidence of similarity before the notice goes out. So the Fifth Circuit has now gone to a single step process where after the plaintiffs have shown that they are some evidence of, of similar similarity, that then a notice can go out. So now the Sixth Circuit has a chance to weigh in on this issue as well, Jeff, in a case involving home health aides um, who are making a claim that their overtime calculations were, were short and that they were underpaid. Um, in that case, the judge took the unusual step of certifying his order for immediate appeal to just go ahead and ask the, uh, the Court of Appeal to provide clarity. In his certification, he said that he, that, that he believed that the Fifth Circuit's ruling in Swales shows that there are reasonable grounds to question 
continued application of the of the two-step collective uh, collective certification process so this could be a really big development uh, for employers out there that are potentially facing FLSA collective actions because you know Jeff I think you can speak to this as well you know a lot of employers know that notice going out to employees can be a very disruptive thing and it is a it, it, it is a big moment because not only does it attract employees to join the litigation which the employer may or may not have a viewpoint on that but it also has the potential to drum up new litigation in different directions that nobody ever thought of before. And so having an opportunity to avoid that notice going out before the case is really well defined, I think is very important um, for employers and can make it um, much easier to manage the business while also managing the litigation. Totally agree. I mean, when I, when I represent employers in these cases and they're not familiar with this process already, you know they're they're always you know surprised to hear that this case that has you know recently been filed where there's been virtually no discovery um, that the burden on the plaintiff is so light at this stage to you know to prove or to get an order from the court requiring notice to go out to all these quote summary situated employees about this lawsuit. Um, and the concern is exactly what you noted, which is that um, rather than make the process more efficient, uh, it actually results in potentially stirring up litigation where you know it's not even clear that it's an appropriate case for a collective action and certainly that there's any merit to the lawsuit. So I think, I think one thing that we should note is that, and hope, um, is that ultimately, depending on what the Sixth Circuit rules, you know, this thing might go to the to U.S. Supreme Court, and then we might get a determination by the U.S. Supreme Court finally on whether this two-step approach is really appropriate, or, or whether it's a rule um, that should be followed by by all of the courts. And I think that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I'm not I, I'm I'm not much of a court watcher, uh, but I do know the court is usually looking for an issue of disagreement between the courts of appeals right now and right. and it seems like the idea of the two-step was so entrenched that it may i i'm wondering if the supreme court isn't going to wait for to see if other courts of appeals take it up and gets a little bit more work done at that level before the court takes it on but again this is something that i think is worth keeping an eye on just to 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 know what to expect in these types of cases Employers, again, in the Fifth Circuit um, can, I think, feel pretty confident at this point in time that there is not going to be early notice out um, to their, uh, to, to their uh, employees um, in, in this stage. But certainly in other parts of the country, maybe not the sixth, but, <laughs> but in other parts of the country, that two-step process is still in place and maybe for, for some time to come. The Supreme Court is expected to rule later this year in a case that could potentially extend overtime to employees normally exempt under what's called the highly compensated employees rule. Uh, now that rule, just to, to try to simplify it as much as possible for podcast consumption, um, enables an employer to 
avoid paying overtime to an employee who earns a total annual compensation of currently $107,432, which includes a salary that is at least $684 per week. In a case now before the Supreme Court called Helix Energy versus Hewitt, the employee is challenging his overtime exemption on the basis of the fact that he was paid in the form of a daily rate. And that daily rate exceeded $900, which meant that the the pay, that the daily rate itself was greater than the weekly salary requirement under the FLSA, and his annual earnings met the uh, requirements of the highly compensated individual standard because he made more than $200,000 per year. The employers obviously took the position that that daily rate, because it was over $900, the, the pay for one day of work exceeded the weekly threshold and thus his guaranteed compensation exceeded what was required under the salary basis under federal law. Now, Jeff, you told us earlier that, um, that, that employers normally like to challenge these practices in the Fifth Circuit. And of course, in this case, we have an employee-friendly decision coming out of the, the Fifth Circuit where um, the, the court, an en banc panel of the Fifth Circuit, held that the text of the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, as well as the regulations, supported the employee's view because that daily rate was not a weekly salary guarantee. That amount essentially can fluctuate from week to week. So this question now is in front of the Supreme Court. Um, it is, I think, up to court watchers to, to try to predict how the court is gonna come out. It does um, seem to defy the ordinary um, fault lines that you would normally find at the court. Um, related to employment law issues, you know, and I think that is is itself illustrated by the fact that the Fifth Circuit, which is normally an employer-friendly jurisdiction, came out on the side of the employee here. So I think it could be um, quite an interesting uh, majority opinion uh, out of the Supreme Court later this year that tells employers which way to go. Um, but certainly something to be aware of uh, for employers who are relying on the highly compensated employee exemption. Yep, and I, you know, just sort of um, from like sort of a practical point of view on this, you know, what, what, he, what the employer is arguing in this case is that this employee who I, I believe for at least a few years consecutively um, was earning over $200,000 a year. Right. And what they're saying is it was never the intention, you know, of the drafters of the Fair Labor Standards Act um, that somebody who's making that kind of money would be entitled to overtime pay. Right. That it was intended for hourly workers, low wage workers, that kind of thing, not somebody making two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, so sort of like a big picture, you know, point of view, you can understand where the employer is coming from and it'll be interesting to you know to see the extent to which the courts take that into account as opposed to just sort of a deep dive into regulatory construction yeah i think that's i think that's right jeff i think 
in reading the Fifth, Cir the Fifth Circuit's opinion, I do think there was a focus on the sense of the fixed weekly salary um, being also a consideration on top of the high level of compensation that both were important and, and both exist for a, 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 a statutory, you know, as a evidence right. of, of legislative intent here. Um, to me, the thing that, that I think is the takeaway here for employers <laughs> is that maybe you should, if you have employees that are earning daily rates, maybe you should revisit whether that daily rate makes sense because it could potentially, especially depending on the outcome of this decision, could throw that person into a non-exempt status even though you're paying them a lot of money, right? And and so maybe the best way to avoid that is to, if you have salaried employees, to, to make it a week, really a weekly salary instead of a daily salary. If practical, right, if you can do it. Well, if you can do it, right? And then maybe you have to make those decisions. Um, well, if we can't practically do this person on a salary basis, then maybe you, you just have to make them, if they're gonna pay them overtime, maybe you have to make them hourly. And then what does that happen? You have to potentially bring their comp down. Do you lose good people? All of those important considerations come into play. So this I think is gonna be a tricky one for employers. Um, if if the if if the, the Supreme Court affirms the Fifth Circuit decision and and um, you know rejects this this compensation structure that was uh, that was before the before the lower courts here um, with respect to the daily rate. And it's gonna gonna provide a challenge for employers with that that compensation model. So the next case we're going to just very quickly talk about um, is a case called Mayfield versus the U.S. Department of Labor, and this is guess what, another Texas case. Um, and here, the plaintiff is challenging um, what's been sort of an accepted part of the uh, overtime exemption test for many, many years, which is the salary threshold. Um, the Fair Labor Standards Act says that hourly employees, certain employees are required to be paid overtime for hours in excess of 40 in every, any given week. The exemption is what we know as the white collar exemption, um, which says, you know, white collar workers are, are not required to be paid overtime. And there's certain tests as to whether they, you know, a worker fits under any of those white collar exemptions, such as the administrative exemption, uh, professional exemption, the um, administrative worker exemption, and so on. Um, the those exemptions are codified in the Fair Labor Standards Act. Many, many years ago, the Department of Labor added this concept that they have to meet these factors, but they're all they also have to be paid a minimum salary to qualify under the white collar exemption and be exempted from overtime. Um, this case challenges that entire concept of the salary threshold for a white collar exemption saying that's not part of the law, that was a creation by the Department of Labor and exceeds their authority. Um, so this, you know, this is a really interesting challenge. Um, it would upend what's been an accepted part of the overtime exemption analysis for, for a lot of years. Um, but given the trend in these cases challenging executive agencies' authority to make rules, you know, you, know, you never know. It could, they could succeed. 
So it's something we're watching. And again, this is not something that I would advise any employer to consider, you know, changing their practices at this point. It's um, too soon. It's way too soon. But certainly if if a court rules in favor of the plaintiff um, and, you know, it'll certainly go to appeal and then it'll get interesting. It sounds like it will it will get quite interesting, Jeff. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, I'm not. And again, this is something that if it was ended up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court with the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, we could see the salary threshold disappear. That's very speculative, of course, and we're talking years down the line, but something we're keeping an eye on for our clients. So Jeff, that brings us to our state roundup, which is also a look at things that are happening in the states that, that employers need to keep an eye on in the, the, the new year. Um, we have talked on our, on our blog, or our group blog, which is called HR Defense, um, and you can find it on Ackerman.com. Um, we've talked recently about pay, pay transparency laws that have gone into effect um, in California and Washington State um, that took effect this year. Um, that will require employers to um, advertise salary ranges um, for jobs that are posted. Um, and that tracks similar legislation that's gone into effect in uh, Colorado and in New York as well. Um, and we can expect that may also be a sign of a trend uh, that may come at least among um, some of the maybe perhaps more employee-friendly jurisdictions, um, you may see more states adopting similar pay transparency requirements. 23 states and the District of Columbia increased their minimum wage rates in 2023 as of January 1st. Um, that's too many for us to get into <laughs> on our show, so we'll mention a few of the big jurisdictions, um, one of which is California. Um, California's minimum wage increased just by virtue of, of operation of inflation. Uh, we've been in a very inflationary market. And the last uh, minimum wage increase in California now requires the state to index uh, the minimum wage to inflation. And when it increases by more than 7%, which was the case in 2022, um, then all businesses are required to, um, to, to increase the minimum wage accordingly. So in New York, um, in New York City is already at a $15 minimum wage, but in some regions of the state that are $13.20 an hour now, that minimum wage will increase or has increased as of January 1st to $14.20 an hour. Um, and keep in mind that those regions are subject to annual increases um, based on economic indices until they reach $15 an hour. Um, so the goal, I think, in New York is to get everybody to $15 an hour in the next few years. Would you agree with that, that Jeff? That, that would be the goal. That's what the legislature has, has, has mandated as of now. Um, New Jersey has also increased the minimum wage in 2023 uh, by $1.13 an hour. So it's going to be fourteen thirteen in New Jersey this year. And also in Connecticut, the minimum wage went up in July to $14 an hour. It's going to go up another dollar on June 1st of this year to $15 an hour. Um, and those are only four states. We've got 23 total plus the district 
which increased their minimum wages this year. So chances are, if you're an employer, this affects you somewhere in the country. So uh, take a look out. And again, of course, contact your employment lawyer uh, if you need additional guidance on, on complying with these new, uh, these new minimum wage increases. Thank you for listening to Episode 5 of The Ackerman Angle, Legal Insights on Wage and Hour Law, addressing what to expect on the wage and hour front in 2023. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at podcasts at We welcome your input, and we may even answer one of your questions on an upcoming episode. Thank you, and see you next time.